From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 360, Exchange 2013 Update with guest Tony Redmond. Recorded Tuesday, March 11th, 2014. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Hey, we have a Wikipedia page. Some fine in, enthusiastic fellow has put together a Wikipedia page with a bunch of references for Run As Radio, which surprises me. And, and if you haven't looked, we also set up a Facebook page some time ago, and I post all the shows there as well. So feel free to swing by Facebook. I guess I should do that for Google Plus as well. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be here, there, and everywhere. So you'll see me at TechEd with Carl. We'll be doing Speaker Idol again this year and possibly doing a few Run As interviews while we're actually at TechEd. But that's all I need to say about that. Let me dive into today's show because I have Tony Redman on the line. We've talked to Tony before. He's the principal of his consulting company, Tony Redman Associates, and he helps companies figure out technology strategy to accomplish specific goals. He has much experience, 27 years at Digital Compact and Hewlett Packard, time at as a vice president as well. I think that's where I met him. And he is, of course, an MVP for Exchange. Uh, contributes to uh, the IT Pro Magazine and two blogs uh, for uh, Exchange Unwashed, as well as Thoughts of an Idle Mind via WordPress. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Richard. Good to have Good you to back. Good to be with you again, as always. Mm-hmm. And you're, off, you're out in Ireland? Uh, yes, right now it's a nice, bright, sunny afternoon in Ireland. It doesn't look at all like Ireland that you'd normally expect, it, but we... <laughs> Do get some nice days here. Once in a while. And I'm on the west coast of, of Canada, so it is early morning here. But that's the way these things work. Last time we talked was almost, I think, exactly a year ago. And we were in Exchange 2013 was kind of in early days. And it was not an, it wasn't easy to migrate to 2013 at that point. Uh, that's absolutely right. Um, it took Microsoft time to get the their act together and get the tools out the door that would allow... Exchange 2013 to coexist alongside 2010 and, and uh, 2007. And even now, this week, they've only just released uh, some deployment tools to help people really get off uh, Exchange 2003. So, you know, it just takes time, I think, to crank up uh, all of the ecosystem around um, a brand new release of a product, a brand new architecture, some brand new features. And to be fair to Microsoft as well, you've also got to reflect that because Exchange sits at the center of an ecosystem, yeah. it's all the third-party stuff as well, because nobody in their right mind is going to go and deploy uh, a production server without having you know, their monitoring framework in place, their backup regime in place, all of their add-on stuff that the business wants and needs and requires in place. It just doesn't happen. So at that time, I think uh, just about a year ago, it really was the early days of Exchange 2013, and now we're a year down the track, and things are a little bit different, I guess. And I hate to be cliche, because I don't want to believe this is still true, but we've they've just put out Service Pack 1 of 2013, and once again, it seems like, hey, once you have Service Pack 1, everything is pretty good. Well, <laughs> no, 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 to be fair, yes, the Service, service Packs are very important, um, 
uh, landmarks within a product's uh, development. Uh, there's no doubt that the developers learn a hell of a lot when their software goes into production. Right. I mean, y- you can test as much as you like, and Microsoft does run a very very good, a very solid technology adoption program for Exchange where they allow uh, customers and third parties to have access to early builds. But there's nothing like getting out in the real world. And once you get in the real world, all the flaws come tumbling out. And those flaws have got to be fixed. And fixing them is a service pack one, I guess. Now, the, the difference this time around, of course, is that service pack run is really the fourth update for Exchange 2013, because, of course, we're now using this quarterly cadence for updates. Right. So I look at SP1, I think of it as a significant event in the in the lifespan of the product because it allows customers who have been waiting for SP1 to uh, to say, okay, now it's time to kick off. Now let's get the deployment projects underway. Uh, but really, the way to think about it is that this is a release that is the product of... Uh, four update cycles, and it's the product of a lot of experience that Microsoft has gained in the field. And do you feel like those quarterly update cycles were not as scary as the hot fixes have been in past years of exchange? To Microsoft's credit, I think that the um, cumulative update strategy that they have adopted for Exchange 2013 is really quite good. Now, they've had some problems getting quality right. There's yeah. no doubt about that. I think that just reflects the accelerated uh, pace that they're working to uh, and the need in their minds, possibly more than anybody else, is just to remain competitive in the cloud. You know, Because in the cloud, you're always going to have these slipstream releases going on yeah. uh, as new software, new features gets, gets put into production. So a cumulative update is really a collection of stu- stuff that's hanging around like updates, bug fixes, new features, anything's ready to go stuff that has been running in Exchange Online for for six to eight weeks seems to be good. Let's get out the door. The good thing, uh, and uh, you can immediately see some bad things, but the good thing about it is that they are providing full-blown releases of Exchange. So you can can go and Exchange and install Cumulative Update 3 and it's Exchange. Right. 2013 plus every update known to man. Same thing with SP1. So I like that. Yeah. I like the fact that they are, are really getting their heads around the quality issues and are working very hard to resolve them. I guess people don't see that, but uh, folks like me who are uh, well-connected, let's put it like that, with the development group see a lot of the pain that they're going through and see a lot of the efforts that they're uh, undertaking to actually fix the problems. So I appreciate that. The downside, of course, is that things can get rushed at times. Uh, I mean, we, we saw that uh, last week where uh, Microsoft had to uh, admit, okay, SP1 went out on uh, February 25th, and right. all of a sudden, February 27th, we have a, a late-breaking bug that was introduced in a minor build a couple of days before Exchange uh, 2013 SP1 was closed off. So, you know, there are swings and roundabouts of this cadence. Uh, there are good things and bad things, and I guess the intelligent tactic that people should be looking at under uh, is that they want to take advantage of the goodness, mm-hmm. but they want to defend themselves against potential quality. So test, test, and test again. 
Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely. Uh, I mean, back with the old roll-up system, uh, you know, you you only installed it if you really thought you needed it, if it was solving a particular problem with you. And it was a big testing suite. But uh, I wanted to believe the cumulative update would be a little less threatening. But um, I, I think you still have to go through the whole process every time. Well, I think it just makes sense to put it on a test box that, that is an accurate representation of your production environment and run it on that test box for a week or so before you put it into production. Right. You see, it comes back to the ecosystem thing again. The exchange developers have a massive automated test suite. It's, it's, it's an act. It's, it's, it's a huge thing. It's hyper complex. It's, it's got lot, tons of moving parts and it tests the hell out of lots of things, but it can't test the hell out of your own environment. Your environment is, is, has potentially got some unique aspects. Mm-hmm. It's got some third party software that's interacting with a different thing. It's got some homegrown uh, EWS code. It's got this, it's got that, or it's got the other thing. Who knows? You know, they don't. Right. So I always view, I, I view this in the same way as I think about consultants. If you bring a consultant into your company, they, they know nothing about your company, but they know a hell of a lot about, say, something like, uh, uh like Windows. So if you use that to your advantage by saying, well, we'll provide the company information, the information about what the business needs to do, what what problems we need solved, even what office politics exist, and you put that and you add that to the 50% that the consultant brings, which is the knowledge of outside the company, of the technology or whatever, you'll probably get a good solution. So if you adopt that kind of attitude and say, well, we're going to take what Microsoft says is tested code, Right. We believe them. It's absolutely tested. It works very well as far as their test environment goes. Right. I mean, and the ultimately, it's been running for weeks in their cloud environment, which is very large, but it's only one environment. Yes, and it's a very, very standardized environment. It's a very heavily automated environment, right. and it doesn't have third-party products running in it. Right. And that and that's right. where it's going to get you, is the differences in the hardware, differences in configuration, and all these third-party pieces you're bringing into play. Different uh, even in things like uh, the version of Windows you're using. Sure, you know because uh, and and they're all you, you cannot take the cloud environment and say well you know it works in the clouds therefore it's going to work on prem. That just doesn't compute. Right, it doesn't compute because uh, of the different management environment, because of the different operational environment, because of the uh, even the way they do things. You know, I mean, what, uh, they don't apply cumulative updates to bring servers up uh, up to speed. That would just take too long. They take servers out of the active server pool, they wipe them back down to bare metal, and then just reinstall with whatever is the the the, the current uh, uh, version of Windows, Exchange, and anything else that needs to go in the box, and then it goes back into the active server pool. You wouldn't do that in your production environment, A, because you probably think that that's too complex, and B, because that's not the way Microsoft says you have to do it because they provide an, a set of procedure for you to run, uh, and, uh, and and C, because you don't have the automation right. that allows you to take servers out of the active server pool, reduce them to bare metal, reinstall them, and bring them back in. So it becomes an intensely manual, uh, and therefore an intensely costly and error-prone uh, process. Yeah, and it's, it's you've got to test against your environment. It's just not always simple to do that. No, but because of the fact that you know that every quarter you're going to get one of these cumulative releases, right. you're going to have to uh, change some processes or procedures that you've got going to be able to deal with it. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to have to install every cumulative update. 
Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Whether or not you actually you, you do it. Because, no, no. You only have to install a cumulative update if you need to get support. Right. Okay. So if you find a bug in Exchange. Microsoft is not going to fix that bug or listen to you about that bug unless you're running the latest cumulative update. But if you're running a solid operational environment that's based on a particular cumulative update and a new cumulative update comes out, you don't have to suddenly say, well, I've got to now go and redo. You can keep on running until you're ready to go. Now, this doesn't mean that you let things get too out of date because I think it's okay to skip one cumulative update. I wouldn't skip two. Right. But it does give you a little bit more time to play around with things. Unless, of course, you encounter a bug, in which case you're going to have to go and install the software. Right. And I love that just that threshold is, do you need tech support? Because if you need tech support, then you need to get up to date. Well, do you need Microsoft support? Right. Right. Because remember, again, it's an ecosystem thing. So a problem that you see may not be down to Exchange. It may be down to something like uh, a different part of uh, Microsoft, such as Outlook, or it may be bad down to a third party. It may not be Exchange. Yeah, and, you need, and that needs to be detected. You've got to figure that out. Yes, and again, you're the one who knows your environment best. You know, uh, I, it, it, it amuses the hell out of me sometimes when you hear people saying, well, I phoned up Microsoft support and I told them about my problems and they weren't able to help me. It's like, okay, hold on a minute. Think about the poor guy at the end of the, the line. You've got this very complex environment which you are intimately aware of, and you ring them up and you tell them about one tiny piece of that environment that's misfunctioning, and you haven't provided the entire context. Right. It's impossible, in fact, to provide the entire context, all your knowledge about whatever has been going on in those systems for years. So think of what it's like from the support guy guy's perspective. He, it, it's a really, really difficult thing to, to understand. So you've got to step up to the plate and you've got to take primary responsibility for knowing your environment and recognizing when it's running well or when it's running badly and recognizing where the likely problems are, are, are coming from. Is it exchange? Sure, go and call Microsoft, but be sure you have that, that information that's going to support that contention first. Oh, for sure. And, 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 and you know, figure out, is it a third-party interaction? Is it a client interaction? Is it something else that's getting in the way? Is it Windows? I mean, you know, maybe it's just Windows, and Windows needs to have a, an update applied to it. I don't know. But, you know, all of these things are floating around in the environment. It just proves how complex some of this stuff really is today. And I've, I've always found that when you finally call PSS, and we're all hesitant to call PSS, they're really quite good, and they work very hard to get the solution through. Like, it takes time, and most of it's just trying to actually understand what the problem is. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Because again, I think there's a feeling out there that PSS have, has got this uh, huge suite of super secret tools right. that will allow them to take the merest hint of a problem and translate it and come out with a with a solution. And of course, that's cloud cuckoo land. That doesn't happen in reality. Right. You've got to provide context for the problem, why it's happening, what could have provoked it. What other stuff was happening around it? What 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 system environment you're running and all the rest of it before any anybody's got a sporting chance uh, of resolving a problem, and all this stuff is then input into whatever tools PSS have to help them fix it. But at the end of the day, you know what? An awful lot of it comes down to intuition mm-hmm. on the part of the support professional and the interaction with the person who is running the environment. You know, because if the if the support person has got 
great intuition and knowledge and, and experience with products. And they get talking to an admin who's on the ground and understands their stuff backwards and, and has a sense of where the problem might, might be. That's a recipe, I think, for a much quicker resolution of the problem rather than having a, 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 the standard kind of phone call is like, help, I've got a problem. You know, when I do this, exchange crashes. Okay, right. well, let's start from ground zero and work up. You know, but that's just the way the world works. Yeah, it takes it. There's no way around the fact that it takes time to get someone up to speed. And half the time, that process usually reveals the problem to you as well. Yes, if you're, if you're speaking to a good support professional, because it comes back again to intuition. Right. If the person at the other end of the line understands the product, is experienced, they've been in support a while, then they're likely to have a sense of where the problem lies. And they're, they're, they're likely to draw it out of you. Right. And the process of drawing it out of you is likely to help you identify the problem yourself, in which case, you know, everybody wins. Yeah. You know, so that's, that's, good. that's the difference between good support people and bad support people. Mm-hmm. Or if you're like inexperienced, I, mean, let me, no, I don't want to say bad support people because uh, working in support, working frontline support, and I did it in the past, is really, really, really difficult. Yeah, it's a tough and job. It's thankless. It's thankless. So there, <laughs> I, I don't want to say bad, bad support people. Let's say just frontline inexperienced support people and type of the level three people who have been around the trenches for a while, who have got kicked a number of times by the product, and they understand where things might, might be going wrong. Yeah. You know, but, that, but getting back just to, just to SP1, just to, to finish up on the, on, on, on the feeling about SP1, there's no doubt that, yeah, there is a sense out there in the, the tech community that you should never go and deploy a Microsoft server application until SP1 comes around. And that's the reason why SP1 is there for Exchange 2013. Right. Uh, if that feeling didn't exist, they'd, they'd be calling it a cumulative update 4. Which is, it, which is what it really SP1. is. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I think there's, there's goodness and badness for, for both the customers and Microsoft in having this kind of sense of wait for SP1 before you deploy anything. The goodness for Microsoft is interesting because if customers all went and deployed RTM, Right, they all deployed yeah. the software as soon as it was re- released. Microsoft's support costs would go through the roof. <laughs> they would be overwhelmed. Absolutely. Now, support costs are enormous when things go wrong. A long time ago, when I was in the support business, we reckoned that every time a support person picked up a, a telephone. To, call, to, to listen to a customer who was ringing in to register uh, a complaint, it cost us 70 bucks. Wow. Just to create the tickets, do the initial diagnosis, and, and get the, the thing rolling. So if everybody went and used RTM code, Microsoft would be swamped with support. The engineers would never be able to do any work because they'd, they'd have all these high-priority crit sits come in and support costs would be would blow all the budgets. So, because we are we live in a practical, pragmatic world, everybody waits for SP one, right? Except the except greenfield deployments or right. people who like to, to to get out there, or indeed Exchange Online, who 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 really do live on the the raw edge. But they live on the raw edge in a highly standardized, highly automated, high, very tightly managed environment. So it's a different ball game as we discussed earlier, and I think. The other advantage of waiting there from um, a customer perspective is that bugs sap energy. Right. 
you know, if if you go and try and deploy buggy technology, it just you can be driven up the wall by dealing with all the bugs. And each time you you, you something doesn't work the way it should work, or it doesn't work the way it's documented to work, mm-hmm. and they can be two different uh, situations. You just spend so much time figuring out: Is it me? Did I do something wrong? Yes. Okay. Is it something with my environment? Did I install something wrong? Or it's just a bug. But it just takes time. And each one of those bugs that you meet creates this corrosive effect of, of taking away your time and taking away your energy. So, you know, at the end of the day, when you get to an SP1, you are really getting to a release that's feature complete in most cases. And it's got, it's had, it's had its, its backside kicked around a little bit to get rid of bugs and, 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 and to, to drive quality. So that's really, really good. And the people that then go and deploy it do so with some confidence that because it's been out there in the wild for a year or so, there a lot of the stuff that was going to come out has come out and is documented and there are workarounds or it's been fixed in the SP1 release. Right. And there's a lot more experience and, and, and things like blog posts and whatever that they can read up on so that they're better prepared. So all in all, in all you know, an SP1 release, waiting for an SP1 release, really suits both Microsoft and the customer base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it, it's a good play, and but it still doesn't avoid to actually taking responsibility for your testing. This you can't just drop something like this in your system and expect it to work. Oh, you can. <laughs> oh, well, you can. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Why not? There are consequences. Well, no, don't, no, that would be a very negative way of looking at it, Richard. There <laughs> might be consequences. You might be fired. That's a consequence. That's a it consequence. Happen, you know, but who can predict what happens when software is installed in type in, inside the environment? But right. then again, you know, uh, you, you know, to, to debate against you, you could say, well, I could take the SP1 release and put it into an environment that is pretty tightly controlled, that's running the latest operating System that's got all the patches on that I'm not going to use too much uh, third party software. I've well prepared myself for the installation. I've read up and got and acquired as much knowledge as I can. I'm going to have a good time. Does everybody do that? Absolutely not. Right. And that's where the problems lie. Yeah. Well, that's the reason why you need testing. Yeah. It, 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 if only to force you to go through the intellectual process of doing an install, figuring out what might go wrong in your environment and testing to to, to satisfy yourself that, that when you actually do it in production, it's going to go right. You're going to have some certainty about that. Mm-hmm. Any favorite features coming out of SP1, the, the latest roll-up? I think there's uh, there's a nice mixture of features in SP1. There are some um, long-term uh, features that... Uh, add a lot of value to the product, I think. Not immediately, but they will have their impact over the long term, and there are some uh, short-term ones. Uh, I'll give you an example of both. I think um, the two long-term features that I see that I think will add a lot of value are Mappy over HTTP uh, and the simplified DAG, the Database Availability Group. Now, both of these features are driven by online. Both of them are driven by Office 365. Yeah, Mappy's like a flash from the past. Oh, no, 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 no. Both of these are, are driven purely to reduce complexity, to simplify the operational environment, hmm. and to make a massive 
multi-tenant environment easier to manage. And they have great benefits for on-prem later. Not, not immediately, but, but, but later. Mappy over HTTP eliminates RPCs. It doesn't eliminate Mappy. Mappy is still there. It's still the API. Right. Right? But it eliminates RPCs. And RPCs were introduced a long, long, long time long ago. Long time ago. Long time ago. <laughs> so long ago that cavemen probably tapped out RPCs on the stone walls of caves. Yep. But anyway, RPCs are sensitive to any sorts of uh, network interruptions. And it means that when you're using uh, clients like Outlook that by their very nature are consuming so much bandwidth. I mean, my gosh, Outlook. When oh, it yeah. Of all this, uh, all the data it wants from Exchange and everywhere else, it's consuming so much, so much bandwidth. And you then put it into a context where we, we hop from network to network to network in, in coffee shops, in airports, even in the office. And, you know, Outlook is continually breaking connections and redoing connections. That kind of thing is not the kind of environment that RPCs work well in. Right. They work extremely well when everybody's on a nice, solid Ethernet in the office with wires going into the back of PCs. Yep. They work extremely well. That's what they were designed for. Well, if you look at all of the other exchange protocols, you look like the protocol used for ActiveSync. You look like the, you look at the protocol used by Outlook Web App. These are protocol, are the one used for exchange web services. All of these are based on uh, the ability to set up long, long-standing um, HTTPS connections that can be torn down or re-established very, very quickly. So moving Outlook from this chassis, fragile, ancient, RPC inter-process connection to using a modern, web-friendly, network-friendly, uh, protocol, which is what Mappy over HTTP is, seems to make a huge amount of sense to me. Now, it's going to take time for this transition. The Office 365 customers aren't going to get a chance to vote because it'll just happen. Right. And as long as they're using clients that can consume Mappy over HTTP, that's what they'll be using. And that client is Outlook 2013 SP1. For the, for the on-prem world, you do get a chance to control it, so uh, which is important because there are going to be some bumps along this particular path. One bump that we know already is where you've got uh, a mixed uh, Exchange 2010, uh, 2013 environment. You've got old-style public folders on Exchange 2010 servers. You've got you've moved all the mailboxes over to Exchange 2013. You've switched it to um, switch over to Mappy over HTTP. Will you get proxy connections to those old-style public folders? Hmm, maybe, perhaps, <laughs> on a good day with the west winds coming in from the east <laughs> and if you're on your your knees praying. Right. So, which accounts for the the advice of this is the very last thing you want to do in your Exchange 2013 deployment. But, you know, getting past the bumps and looking two years down the road where we're all running Exchange 2013 or Exchange 2016 or whatever we're running in the last stage, and all the clients have been updated, that's where we will see benefits. And you'll see benefits in terms of easier connections. You won't have so many uh, so many drops on Outlook and all the rest of it. And if you do have problems, those connections will be easier to debug. 
Nice. Because they're absolutely, you know, PC connections are absolutely horrible to debug today. So that is one of the things that I think has come from the cloud. It will simplify the life for Microsoft in the cloud. Because, you know, basically they're just using HTTP then to connect it into Exchange Online. Um, and simplification drives costs. So that's, so that's a good thing from their perspective. I think it will have that, that positive effect for the on-prem community over the next two, three years. The other feature I like, uh, again, has big benefits initially for Microsoft in the uh, cloud space, is the simplified DAG. Why does that have benefits? Because it eliminates the need for IP addresses, IPv4 addresses specifically. Right. And you may have noticed that we're, you know, we're running out of these, these things. Which yeah. Are. So can you imagine how many database availability groups Exchange Online has? <laughs> and the answer is tens of thousands. Right. Can you imagine how, ma- how many IP addresses they need? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go, tens of thousands. Can you imagine reuse, uh, using uh, simplified DAGs which don't need IP addresses, what impact this makes? Oh, yeah, you get it straight away. So, but this also then has a, has a, has a good thing for the uh, on-prem community because it means that DAGs which are built on Windows 2012 or 2 are going to be easier to construct and easier to manage. And, you know, if you're ultra securely, uh, security conscious, they're easier to secure because there are fewer network components that are exposed to attack. So I think this is a nice thing. I think it's, it also means that Exchange is removing more of the dependency that it had on Windows for failover clustering. Uh, more and more of the high availability stuff is being done natively within the product. It's good. But again, it's going to take time for the on-prem community to benefit because you're going to have to get, migrate all your DAGs over to the new form. Right. Uh, you know, you can't just upgrade them. They, they're going to need Windows 2012 or two servers. You can only have one version of an operating system inside a DAG. You know, so it's a matter of rebuilding DAGs or building new DAGs and transferring mailboxes across. But it will happen. And I feel pretty sure that the simplified DAG will become the de facto standard for the DAG uh, within the next two or three years. I, I'm starting to feel like the DAG is the death of the SAN. Like, why would oh, yeah. I bother with a SAN anymore with the sophistication well, they're getting here? No, 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 no. Don't go, don't. Once you make that argument, I think you're, you, you, you lose sight of the fact that some companies manage storage from a storage perspective. Right. You're looking at that from an application perspective. And if you allow that to happen, where every application dictates its own storage requirements, you can end up with a mismatch of storage. Right. Whereas if you take the other perspective, which is say, okay, how much storage do I need, and how can I provide that most effectively and efficiently to all of the applications that need that storage, then you may find a justification for a SAM. And indeed, many of the large companies that are out there that are providing storage not only to Windows, but other operating systems, not only to Exchange, but also other applications, find it easier to set out from a storage perspective, establish an architecture, establish a platform, and then provide that, that those storage services to applications. If you listen to all the propaganda that comes out from an application perspective, you would immediately conclude that JBOD is the only way to do Exchange. Why? Because that's the way they do it in Exchange Online. Right. But, again, Exchange Online is not like any on-premises environment in the world. So get away from that environment. They do JBOD because they're running Exchange Online based on an application requirement. 
The applications requirement is for cheap disk, provide cheap disk. End of story. So, again, I think you've got to be sensible, you've got to be pragmatic, and you've got to look at your business requirements rather than getting lured into the propaganda and assuming that just because the DAG is there and the DAG can run on JBOD and the DAG does an extremely good job of providing high availability for exchanges, I've got to use JBOD. That just doesn't compute. It, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It's not yeah. rational. So, I mean, in the context of a single app, the approach makes sense. Like, if you're just thinking about exchange, but when you oh, yeah. get into the reality of an enterprise infrastructure, not everybody gets to have this. It doesn't make sense. And now you can talk more coherently right. about what a SAN's really about. Uh, that, that's exactly so. And, and let's face it, every company is different. And, and more especially, the politics that are played out within every company are different. And more especially than that, the politics within the IT department of every company is different. Yes. So we're all familiar with the cases where, you know, uh, you've got people who manage one application, can't do anything on Windows because that's the domain of Windows people, and I can't change anything in DNS because that's the domain of the networks people, and I can't touch the storage because, my God, there's a sound engineer over there who's filing his nails who would uh, have a blue fit if I went over. Uh, <laughs> you know, so you can't make rules for every company in the world based on one set of beliefs which are put out by, uh, you know, people who are wearing a particular hat. I think you have to, you have to, again, it goes back to the 50-50 rule. You know 50% of the answer and the other folks know 50% of yes. the answer. The 50% that I would take from the exchange experience inside Microsoft is that the developers have done a phenomenal job in translating uh, expensive disk I.O. for cached memory in the last decade, since Exchange 2003, they have been on this path of transferring as much as they can into cached memory rather than uh, going to disk all the time. So the, the outcome of this is that you have uh, a, a tremendous uh, disk I.O. profile now for Exchange 2013, which does facilitate deployment of low-class, low-cost disks. Right. Absolutely. On the other hand, it means that you have got a requirement for more memory than you'd ever think was required on mailbox servers because, gee, that data's got to go somewhere, yeah. and it's going to go into cache memory. Which, of course, then has another interesting thing, you know, because people get all worried about virtualized servers and exchange uh, a good virtualized citizen. And you say, oh, yeah, well, exchange runs really well on a virtual virtualized platform, yeah. with Hyper-V or, or VMware. But when you start to scale things up, the costs of running Exchange on a big virtualized platform become pretty interesting mm -hmm. when compared to physical servers, especially when you've got those low-cost disks thrown into the equation. If you think of it, right, I want to build a big Hyper-V platform for Exchange, and it's going to going to support like uh, six big mailbox servers and, that, and each mailbox server is going to need 96 gig or you know now all of a sudden how many gigs oh that's a big amount of you know and just thinking about the disk space that's required at the cost of the uh, hypervisor and the cost and the extra complexity and all the stuff that's tied up with these platforms versus oh well why don't I just deploy six nice steady physical servers with a whole batch of cheap disk and connect them together in a DAG and get high availability that way. Right. 
And you've also got your redundancy that way, you know, like there's lots of advantages to approach it like that, too. Absolutely. So So the point I'm making is that again, 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 take stuff that's going on around exchange and distill it and understand it right. by putting it into context with the with the business requirements, the operational environment and the unique characteristics of your own company and then decide to deploy in, a, in an intelligent manner rather than just taking propaganda and going with that. But I, and I also buy in this idea that exchange and mail in general, or heck, you know, let's talk about unified communications, is a significant enough infrastructure in a given organization that it's fair to say it should have its own network uh, system, its own storage solution. It doesn't need to be combined with the rest of the enterprise system. Well, yeah, you can make that case. Yeah. You can make that case, but again, every company is different. Mm-hmm. So I, I hesitate and being too strong about that because I could turn around and find some very major companies who have, who, where their exchange admins have tried to make that case and be told, no, we have, this is the way we do things. Yes. The point is that the software can go either way. Right. Yeah. I guess that's the fair point is that it can do it one way or the other. You'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So Tony and a half hour flies by as usual, more really. Uh, oh, wow. Thanks so much for your insight. I really appreciate this. It gives me a little more confidence to dig deeper into some of the 2013 stuff that's going on. No problem, Richard. It's always good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. We'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Run As Radio.